This is episode 10 of the Career Geek Podcast. This episode, we'll be talking to Andrew, who works as a software programmer and systems admin. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Andrew Pam, who's working at Strategic Data as a software programmer. And, uh, well, you've worked in a lot of things, so I'm going to start at the very beginning and kind of find out where this interview will go. Um, where, did, where did you study? Um, well, I um, originally went to school at um, Pressel in Kew. At the beginning of my career, um, uh, I actually started before I even left high school, and I went to high school uh, at Pressel, which is a private school in Kew, uh, where, in fact, I grew up. My uh, father has a house in Kew still, and, uh, and he indeed went to Pressel himself when it was a boarding school many, many years ago. Um, so both my brother and I, my brother's a photographer, and he and I both went to Pressel. And um, I started already getting a bit of uh, computer-related work in my final last couple of years of high school. I did briefly go to Swinburne University, um, but uh, I discovered that it was actually um, I was actually uh, losing more time uh, than I was gaining in, in learning. Um, the uh, Swinburne engineering courses start with a common first year, and so although there was Sorry, some inter- what kind of an engineering do you mean? Um, well, that's the thing. Um, engineering courses at Swinburne, the, the first year is common, so it's just generic engineering. Okay. So even though I was interested, obviously, in more computer-related or uh, electronics and computer-related types of engineering, the very first year that you take there involves you in a bit of everything. So you do a bit of bridge design and, and you know, civil engineering type stuff as well. And um, so there was enough there that I felt I wasn't getting value out of, plus I was working full-time, and I felt that I was learning more on my job than I was learning at university. So I actually dropped out um, partway through the first year of university. And after that, I've never taken any further formal higher education apart from being an assistant professor. You also mentioned uh, your job there. What, which job do you mean? Okay, so that first job, um, well, the first couple of jobs that I can remember, they're in my resume on my website, which I don't have in front of me. But my recollection is that um, I started out... Um, working for a video library when video recorders were brand new. Um, so that gives you an idea of when that was. That was the 80s. And um, videotapes were the hot new thing. Suddenly you could rent them out. And, um, and so they needed computers to help keep track of what people were checking in and out because in the earliest days, they were just writing them in books. You know, when people wanted to borrow a video from the shop, they'd actually write it down in a book. And it was horrible. You couldn't run a business that way. So they got early personal computers. These were the first IBM PCs in 1981. And uh, they wanted software for that. And so that was my first job before I even left high school, was working on that kind of stuff. Cool. All right, so, you, so following on from dropping out of university and working for this video library, uh, where, where did you go from there? Oh, let's see. Um, well, that led to consulting work um, because um, pretty soon um, the software that I ended up writing uh, got sold to other chains of video libraries and it, it was in, in the end used in, in three or four different chains of video libraries around Victoria uh, and uh, I started to get consulting work from, from people other than my direct employer uh, especially uh, once the, the initial software had been written of course after that they, they needed more maintenance than anything else and so the, the amount of work that my original employer needed decreased uh, originally they needed me full time to develop the software for them but, but over time they needed me less and so there was more opportunity for me to, to do work for other people who were using the same software. And then that led to more general consulting work. I did take another uh, directly employed position for a while um, for a company called Executive Information Systems which involved me, um, believe it or not, um, writing, um, I think I was writing TCPIP 
drivers, so like really low-level early internet stuff that nowadays it all just comes bundled in with your operating system. But this was back in the days of DOS, you know, and so I had to write assembly-language drivers for serial ports and crap like that that no one would write now because it's all just, you know, people hardly even use serial ports anyway because of USB, but even if they did, no one would write one from scratch. That's just crazy talk. But, but you know, this was in the 80s, and so a lot of stuff you had to do it yourself. And so, um, so I was doing this uh, to help support some kind of executive... Um, management system that would tell you information about your company and that needed some kind of networking stuff to transfer their spreadsheets around and and so I had to write all the low-level stuff to make that work. Um, So that was another um, full-time employment job that I got. Um, I think I got that... um, I'm not sure whether they advertised it and I saw it somewhere. This is a long time ago, of course. This is, you know, 25 or more years ago. Well, if I can just stop you there. One thing I'm really curious about... Okay, so... Uh, you, you you got into IT a little bit in high school and you didn't do Swinburne. Like, where where did you develop your software development skills? Oh, well, that actually started while I was in high school because, um, uh, as I said, um, the first uh, jobs I had was sort of around, what, 81 or something. So I already started being interested in computers in the late 70s, which was the dawn of the personal computer era. Um, so a lot of people got interested in, in computers around then uh, and, and, indeed, networking. Um, later on, I got interested in, in first bulletin boards and then, and then the Internet, uh, which was also at a fairly early stage. The Internet only, only really started in, the, um, in a noticeable way in the 70s. It kind of dates back to, I think, 69, and theoretically, but nobody was really using it in a widespread way till the 70s. So the early days of the Internet and the early days of personal computers were all in the 70s. And uh, a lot of people got very interested in that back then um, because it was new and exciting in much the same way that people in a generation earlier got interested in radio. You know, you had all these people in the, when it was it, 40s or something, who were getting excited by crystal radios because you could build a radio at home. And, and so the same thing happened with, with early, com- early computers and the early internet, that it was the exciting, hot new thing to be interested in. Um, so, yeah, I, I was interested in, um, uh, you know, as a very young kid, I was interested in electronics and, you know, how did transistors work and how did circuits work. And then that very quickly developed into how did computers work. And I remember actually um, designing a very simple computer and, um, uh, you know, so, sort of an 8-bit processor um, like the sort of things you might have found in early Nintendo video games, so I was designing a, a process like that. Yes, and I also read a lot of computer books and magazines. Um, uh, uh, those magazines have pretty much all folded now because all of those things have gone onto the web, but there were a lot of magazines around. There were things like Creative Computing and Byte Magazine and, and, and a lot of other smaller ones, Computer Language and things like that. that were. Um, uh, my school had subscriptions to those and I would read them at the school library. Um, and, uh, yeah, nowadays those things are all just on the web. Um, Byte magazine, you can buy, like, a DVD of every issue they've put out for the last 25 years or something like that, and no one reads them on paper anymore. But, but yeah, that was, that was how I got uh, interested in that stuff. All right, so software development is obviously a, a very broad field. Mm-hmm. But for someone who's, um, you know, say, looking at university courses at the moment or is, uh, you know, getting out of university and is mm-hmm. kind of trying to assess what skills they have, what are the core skills that you need to have in uh, software development? And I mean... Um, uh, from particular softwares that they need to know and um, coding languages to um, general tasks that they can handle. Sure. Well, there's a couple of different areas in which one might practice software development. Um, for example, a really hot one right now is game design, which is huge. Um, there's, um, I was just reading today that there's a university in the US, which I think is the only university offering a full four-year degree course in game design, uh, University of Georgetown or somewhere like that, and they were amazed that they had um, 500% as many students as they had actually expected. So they suddenly had to, <laughs> had 
had to increase the size of their, their classes and their courses because it was just hugely popular. And the reason for that is because video games are, are the new movies, effectively. That but hold on, sorry, I just got to reel you in for a second. Can, um, I'm more interested in, in what kind of uh, skills and software um, oh, sure. in development right. people need so to have. I, I'm mentioning that, uh, this because um, since video games now make as much money as movies make, okay. one entire field of software development is video game programming. And so I mention it as a specific um, separate type um, there's a danger that it might be becoming so hot that you can't get in anymore. It might be almost too late. Yeah, but I should also caution that um, the Australian video game industry is um, interesting at this moment, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, Australia's actually punched above our weight for a while. That there's, you know, We have a number of video game development companies in Australia. Not every country can say that. I mean, most of it's done in the US. But Australia actually does have video game development companies. But as you say, it's, uh, it's interesting. So whether that's a good course... But bear in mind, if you've got these skills, you don't have to restrict yourself to working in Australia. Many of my friends... I'm quite unusual in that respect, in that many of my friends actually didn't stay in Australia. Once they developed the skills, one of the things that a lot of my friends did is they actually got jobs overseas because sometimes they came back later but um, I've got a lot of friends who got jobs in the US or in Canada because it pays very well um, and, and then of course uh, because Australia is a nice place to live often they came back a few years later when they'd made some money doing it. But how broad is, is a software development education? I mean if you're working in video games development and you find that's not for you or there's not enough employment are you able to transition into say working um, in, into other software applications? Uh, I would say yes. Um, the uh, the thing is that um, a good software developer or one who's actually going to be highly employable will usually have at least one other skill outside programming because a good programmer um, can translate um, requirements from some specific domain into programs. And so if they have some knowledge in some other field, like gaming, then they can program for games, or like science, they can program for scientists, or like business, then they can program for businesses. And so if you have a, a domain-specific knowledge as well as programming skills, then that's going to make you substantially more valuable. But, of course, there are a lot of beginning programmers who just know programming and nothing else, and they'll just be asked to, to do something fairly straightforward and simple, and that's a good way to get started too. So although it's good to have other skills besides programming, and in fact there are people who come to programming from some other field altogether, it's quite common. You'll have people who started out as a scientist and then learn programming rather than people who started out as a programmer and then learn something else. Um, that's, that's extremely common. So if you already have other skills and you're interested in learning programming, I would say that's a, that's a perfectly valid and quite valuable thing to do. The other piece of advice would be um, that you should try and learn more than one programming language because a lot of people who study, and also you, it's perfectly valid to teach yourself as well. There are people who take courses. Uh, they take university courses or they take certificate courses, TAFE courses. Um, there are a number of ways you can get um, programming skills, um, and those are all valuable and good, but um, it's also perfectly possible to teach yourself from books and from stuff on the internet. Um, none of that really matters um, if you can prove that you know your skills, um, whether you have uh, you know, certificates or stuff is not usually what an employer cares about. They're usually more likely to look at programs you've written or ask you to write one even. Um, so having the skill is likely to be more important than where you got it. Okay. Um, what about uh, in applying for jobs? Uh, is it all just a resume or can you also say, I don't know, attach software you've written or code? Um, how, how do you normally go about it? Well, um, in my case, having um, you know such a long history, uh, I tend to go. You know, I, I'm not usually 
um, frantically trying to get work as someone at the beginning of a career might be. I'm, I usually have people coming to me. You know, I have headhunters. Every, every time I, my brother just emailed me yesterday and said, you should update your resume because it was, you know, it's like six months out of date or something. And uh, I've got it on my website. And I emailed back to him and said, well, the problem is every time I update my resume, I immediately start getting emails from recruiters because apparently they have programs that like scrape the web and look for updates. And if they see you've updated their resume, your resume, they think, ooh, maybe you're looking for a job. Um, and so, yeah, I just get emailed things from people saying, here's a job, do you want it? And most of them I turn down because they're usually in a location I'm not interested in. I actually uh, had Google after me a couple of times who are quite a good company to work for um, for a number of reasons. And and, um, and I went and interviewed in the US. They paid for me to fly to, to the head office of San Francisco and interview there. And um, in the end, they decided not to employ me that time. But then they followed me up another you know year or so later saying, would I like a job in Sydney? And I turned that one down as well. Um, basically because um, I would rather live in Melbourne. Uh, I've had a number of job offers in Canberra, and I really don't want to live in Canberra, so I've turned all those ones down as well. So how do you end up, um, for someone who's starting out, how do you end up in the enviable position of having more job offers than you can uh, deal with? Right, well, um, the, the secret there is mostly experience. And as I said, I put my resume on the web and people scrape it. And um, I have a lot of um, stuff in my resume that explains exactly what I've done and what tools I've used and what languages I know. And so the recruiters will actually search for that stuff. And so when they're looking, particularly if you've done something that's a little bit unusual. For example, I got a job, um, the one time I did move, um, I actually moved to Adelaide because they paid all my expenses. Um, and I was actually going to take a position here in Melbourne but at the last minute, I got a better offer from Adelaide where they actually said they would pay everything, including all the moving expenses. Mm-hmm. And that happened because they were looking for someone who knew FreeBSD Unix, which is less common. And so because I'd mentioned it in my resume that I'd worked with that, and they were searching for it and saying, oh, who knows that stuff? Um, they found me. And so that's, that's the trick. If you've learned some slightly less usual things, and this, again, comes into what I was saying about learning more than one programming language. If you, if you can show that you have a broad range of skills, um, and particularly in things that are less common, it's more likely people will be, be chasing after you. For example, notoriously, there was a time, especially around 2000, but even now, where people were desperate for COBOL programmers because nobody writes new COBOL stuff now, but there's a lot of old COBOL around at banks and stuff, and all the original programs have retired because they wrote that stuff in the 60s and they retired. And so now if the bank needs to fix something, they were like, where can I find a COBOL programmer? So yeah, if you know something a little bit unusual or if you compare your skills with, with as I said, some other non-programming skills, that will be go a long way towards getting people coming to you. Um, but at the beginning of your career where you might not have a lot of experience and you're just starting out, the best tactic there um, is uh, to either... Uh, take some kind of traineeship or internship or uh, to do work on open source software, which is also really helpful because with open source software, you can publish that, you can show what you've done and people can look at it when they're just trying to decide whether to hire you or even if they don't find the code first, when you go in for an interview, you can point at it and say, look, here's some stuff on the web that I've done and they can look at it and they can see that you've been working on it and what your skills are. So that's something I would definitely recommend to people starting out in their career is to work on open source projects because you will gain some valuable skills and you will also gain a bit of a uh, portfolio that you can demonstrate to people. Cool. And maybe some context as well. Yeah, excellent. That's exactly everything I wanted to hear. You answered the questions before I was going to ask them. Um, You're also a systems uh, admin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're probably running out of time, but is... Is there anything you want to quickly say about that? Yeah, system administration um, requires more responsibility than programming does. You would think it, you know, that there wouldn't be that much difference because, after all, programmers can sometimes be a position that requires a lot of responsibility. You might write programs that could be even life and death if you're doing medical programming um, and you're writing software that runs on medical equipment. That, that might be life and death or, or software for 
planes and you know space missions and things like that. So there can be cases where software is very very critical and you have to have you know really be prove that you're good at it. But there's also a lot of software where you're on a big team. Other you know other people are checking up on you. There's lots of testing and it's not going to matter if you make a few mistakes. So there's plenty of software that's not that critical. System administration, on the other hand, is a position where, again, you might be a junior and have other people looking over what you're doing, but at the end of the day, you're responsible for keeping things working and for keeping a cool head in an emergency, um, and you have to fix things when they're broken and not make things worse and know how to deal with disasters. Um, so it actually um, can be a little bit more stressful, but it also can pay a little bit better. Um, the other thing is the career path's a little bit different because... Um, starting off in the system administration field tends to be really, you know, beginner level stuff because, as I said, it's a position that needs a fair bit of, of trust that you know what you're doing. And so the beginning level will tend to be, you know, in the old days it was like changing tapes on mainframes. You know, they just have you, at the beginning of your career, you just be walking around physically changing backup tapes, which is really boring. Uh, I don't know if people still do that at the beginning of their careers nowadays, but um, certainly you can expect to be doing some pretty unexciting stuff at the beginning um, and then it develops into a position that becomes more responsible and more highly paid as it, as it goes on because eventually you'll be responsible also for um, uh, deciding how money gets spent as well. If you're a senior system administrator, you'll be the one who gets to decide what kind of computers you'll be buying, what kind of network gear you'll be buying and, and things like that. Also, forgive my ignorance, but um, uh, as a software developer, that's all you know, software obviously, but mm -hmm. a systems admin would need to know hardware and software, right? Yes, you would. That's right. System admins don't necessarily need to know that much about programming. They need to know a little bit because they will be expected to write... Um, uh, little utility programs to help automate things in their job. Mm. Um, so if you have to manage 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 computers, you sure don't want to be doing the same thing 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 times. You want to be writing some sort of tool that will let you do that repeatedly across all of the things you're managing. So you will need to know a little bit of programming, especially in scripting languages like Perl or Python or, um, or the shell script or um, the Windows scripting languages or those kinds of things. But you don't really need to be a software developer in the, in the full sense. You will, however, as you said, need to know hardware, absolutely. Absolutely. System administrators are expected to know hardware. So, um, you know, you, if you know actually how to assemble your own PC, that's actually quite valuable skills. It's a good place to start because you might be expected to, uh, to pull apart and reassemble faulty um, servers, which these days are not that different from, from home PCs. Um, people still do use mainframes, but it's becoming more and more common to use huge, vast quantities of, of commodity PCs. Google, for example, has millions of effectively ordinary PCs. So if you know how to assemble your own computer, that's a really good place to start. Cool. Um, well, we'll wrap it up there. But um, is it okay if I, uh, in the show notes uh, on kangeek.com, link to your resume? Is it a good example resume for people to... Um, I don't know if it's a good example resume because I haven't really... Since I've never really had to hunt hard for jobs, I haven't done as much as other people might to fit to the standard resume format. And there are a number of rules that they give you for standard resume format that I probably haven't done. Um, but it still won't hurt to have a look and see the kinds of things that I've done in my career to get an idea of the kinds of things you might be interested in, in trying. So for that reason, people are more than welcome to look at it. Um, uh, and uh, it's at uh, seriesibe.com is my domain, and that's linked from the front page there. So, yeah, yeah sure. Sorry, it's seriesibe as S -E -R -I -C -Y -B, in... S-E-R-I-C-Y-B, which is short for seriesibe, yeah. which is my company name. Um, so SERICYB.com and there's a link there to my resume right up near the top um, and yeah people are welcome to look at that but I don't promise that um, it's good for someone starting out in their career as a format because and in particular the other thing to bear in mind the resume I post on my website is not usually what I will actually give to an employer this job that I'm doing now I actually did 
Um, but that was because I already uh, knew someone who worked here and I knew they wouldn't mind reading through the whole thing. Um, it's, mine is like 12 pages long or something and most employers really don't want to read through that. Yeah. Um, what I actually do for almost all other jobs and what I recommend people do is actually customise your resume for the job. Do a bit of research on the job you're applying for and then write a cut-down one that just includes things that you think are relevant to the job you're applying for. So you should actually have a generic one that has everything in it just for your own memory, which is what my public one is, and then you can pull snippets out of that that you think are relevant for this thing you actually send off to your employer. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, and uh, I should also quickly mention that you have a, a blog on Glasswings. Was it glasswings.com? Is that's that... right, glasswings.com um, or glasswings.com.au um, is, is actually uh, um, Catherine's and my shared blog. Um, and, um, and Catherine is someone we'll be talking to uh, right. on the series as well. And um, and uh, uh, that's actually it evolved. That blog actually evolved out of a mailing list, which it still runs as both a mailing list and as a blog. So you can you can either access it on the web or via email. And um, that's kind of it's a kind of a shared blog of a number of people, um, uh, not only Catherine and myself, but actually um, three or four other people as well. Um, so it's kind of like an Australian Boing Boing, if you've heard of Boing Boing, which is also a group of, I think, six or seven people. who I have think our listeners blog. have heard of Boing Boing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it's, it's been running about the same length of time, and it's not as active and doesn't have as many readers, but it's very much the same concept, is that it's, uh, it's kind of a cool and fun things blog rather than a personal blog. My personal blogging is, is at my live journal page, but I hardly ever put anything there. No worries. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, uh, all, all those links will be uh, on the show notes at cangeek.com. And yeah, thanks for talking. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Career Geek Podcast, a series of interviews with professionals working in all kinds of fields and industries relevant in some way to geeky interests, in the interest of learning about how exactly you get into these kind of awesome jobs. This is also a spin off of the Can Geek Podcast. Now, that podcast is an hour-long discussion show of geek culture and news with myself and two other hosts, and you can find episodes of that podcast as well as more career geek interviews at www.cangeek.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and follow the feed of both podcasts on there. And check out cangeek.com for the most comprehensive and up-to-date guide to geeky conventions, meets and events happening in Australia, New Zealand, and Tasmania. All the links mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at cangeek.com, and I do plan on adding more episodes of Career Geek in the future. Lastly, and most importantly, I'd like to thank the voices behind all the people you hear in the Career Geek podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and share your knowledge. Thank you for listening. Once again, the website is cannedgeek.com, and the music you've been hearing in the background is by Chicago Lolly. Chicago Lolly.